Welcome to the North Texas District Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast from and for those of us serving Jesus in the North Texas District of the Assemblies of God. Hope you're having a good day. Uh, My name is Lennon, and it's my pleasure to be with you. And what this podcast is for is this is a North Texas District-specific podcast to tell North Texas District-specific stories and highlight the voices and churches that are right here. Today, I have a guest with me, uh, Bishop Aaron Blake from uh, Family First Ministries here in the district. Phenomenal orphan care, adoption, advocate. Bishop, you have a lot going on. Well, I tell you what, sometimes I I see myself going and coming, you know. We've been talking, Bishop, about some of the things you have going on with Family First, and we're going to bring you back on again soon to talk about specifically orphan care and the the different things that are very relevant to our churches. Today, I want to talk about something that's uh, just as relevant to our churches, but that we don't often talk enough about. Uh, I want to talk about racial reconciliation in the local church. I know this is a big heart of yours, isn't it? Well, it is. And, uh, you know, the thing about it is that God based the whole concept of the ministry of the gospel on reconciliation. And so how that works in the sense of the church and how that works in the sense of people, not only in relationships, husband and wife, but how does that work racially? between people of color, between the people of poor, uh, middle class, and Democrat and Republicans, you know? Mm-hmm. How does that work, and how can you have courageous conversations? So, yes, this has been something that the Lord laid on my heart for a while. Well, courageous conversations is a big key, because to, especially if, uh, as a minister, we're to look at our church and think in this area, okay, uh, I want my church to be more reflective of the community where we are. Our community may be ethnically diverse, our church is not, I want it to be be more representative of the setting where the Lord has placed us. These kind of things do require courage. And it's very often is something I think for a minister who doesn't know where to start. Sometimes that can be paralyzing and we don't step out and do anything. This is one of the things I was excited to talk to you about, Bishop, because uh, as you and I have been friends over the last couple of years, and I've gotten to learn more and more of your perspective in your heart on orphan care and in this area, one of the things that um, was really surprising to me is whenever you began to share just some stories from your life as a black man growing up in America, black child coming through the civil rights movement and everything, as you shared some of those stories with me, I was like, oh yeah, Bishop was here for that. Bishop saw all of these things. He grew up in all of this. So just talk to us a little bit, Bishop, about the era you grew up in and your experiences. You pastored a predominantly black church in Brownwood, Texas for nearly 30 years. Tell us about some of that as it pertains to what we're discussing. Today. Well, you know, this this is a subject that uh, I had to learn to have um, a courageous conversation. I had to learn uh, how to articulate my experience so that folks won't misunderstand or misinterpret that. Uh, oh, he's just pulling the race card, and uh, and how we can we can really break the barrier because it's a subject that's hard to talk about, especially when, you know, people of different race, different cultures coming together. And, uh, you know, you just don't talk about, you know, race, politics, and religion. Those are the three things you don't talk about. Uh, But those things in particular, race, uh, I believe should be the first thing on the table when it's coming down to breaking down barriers. You know, I was born in a a little town called Brownwood, about 18,000 people. And um, September 27, 1952 is when and uh, I discovered America. 
And I'm over 60 now, so I, I've been black a long time. You, know? you have, haven't you? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in my community, one, I didn't know I was poor. We were poor, and, and I didn't know it. I was a second-year sophomore uh, in college when I took a sociology class and read in the book on the social strata. I looked down there and figured out, well, Mama must have made this much money. And I said, Wow. We are Po, and I say Po because we, you know, we couldn't even afford the the other O and the R, you know. And so I called Mama and I said, "Mama, we are poor." And she said, "Who told you you were poor?" And I said, "I read it in a book, Mama." And she said, uh, "Have you ever been hungry without any food?" And I said, "No." She said, "Have you ever been where you didn't have a roof over your head?" And I said, "No." And she said, "Have you ever been when you didn't have clothes to wear?" And I said, "No." And she said, "Well." Poor is irrelevant. She said, get an education, and then you won't have to think that you're poor. And so what you're basically saying is find a way for me to get knowledge, number one. Find a way for me to get security, number two. And then find a way that I know who I am in Christ. That locked into me for a long time. But when I start pastoring and I start seeing the struggles, especially uh, the struggles when it comes down to race and the civil rights movement. I was a boy in elementary school when uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated, when Dr. Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated, when the civil rights movement. I watched on TV, and I saw the water hose and the dogs, and I, and, and I saw the marches. So when I, uh, I saw those things as a young black boy, it, it made a deep, deep impression on me that moved me, one, first, to a place of, of anger. And then it moved me from a place of anger then to a place of fear. And then it moved me to a place of where, where do I fit and how can I be comfortable in my skin and where I belong? So it raised a heightened awareness. Mm. The school that I was in was all-black school. Integration took place in '55. And uh, I was born in 52, and the school that I was in had not yet integrated, even though integration had already been passed. It had not integrated only up to a seventh grade and beyond. So I went to all-black school. We lived in a community where everything was in the community. Our community store was there. Our barber was there. Everything was there. And so we didn't go outside of the community unless there was something that wasn't there. And then when we did go, Mother would really give us a lecture on how to go and come back home. And I didn't understand that. And so in the seventh grade is when I first caught the bus and went into a all-white environment, all-white school. I was scared to death, and uh, but scared to death, but I learned to walk cool. So long as I walked cool, <laughs> yeah, yeah. then I was okay. But I didn't understand that I was meeting up with other students who didn't know any more about me color-wise as I knew about them, and we had a tension and a, and a fear of one another, and it was the fear of the unknown because we weren't looking at each other as human beings. And it took a football and football pads and a football field to really bring me to the place where I was playing with guys who wound up being my best friends, wound up being my teammates. You know, of course, we wound up winning two state championships out of my three years in high school. Yeah, yeah. You know. But football and the close camaraderie of team let me have my breakthrough in race relations. 
my first race relations with a guy named John Isom. John Isom was a poor kid that lived on the north side of town, which was the poor side of town. And uh, John Isom's dad was a milk truck driver. And John got up early in the morning and ran around with his dad, then came to school and then played football. And so John and I got to be good friends. And we had one thing in common is that we lived on the same side of town and we both came from a poor environment and we both were skinny and little, but John had a lot of fight. He wound up being an all-state linebacker, went off to college. We're good friends even today. But what John taught me was this. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how much money you have or you don't have. When you understand who you are and what you can do, then God can use the rest. And he was a great mm-hmm. Christian. John wound up leading me to Christ, and that shaped my high school uh, years from there. The other side of that matter was when the civil rights movement was going on and when we saw all the atrocities of the civil rights movement, what it did in our community, it brought about deeper and wider gap. So I knew from then that I was going to have to, as a Christian by then, that I was going to have to understand what does God's word say about that. Mm -hmm. And then that then shaped my message for the rest of my ministry. You know, Bishop, you said my first race relation. Like that's a, I love that. That's a, race relations. It's this, um, this overarching term that we talk about on the news, big picture race relations in the country. And for you, race relations began with a single relationship of somebody of a different ethnicity. Whenever we were in North Carolina doing campus ministry at Duke University, our staff were some long-term friends, uh, some black sisters, Stacy and Tracy Williams. These were um, some of our friends moved across the country with us. We shared a house during that time while we were doing ministry at Duke University. Stacy worked at a, a department store at the mall during those years while she was there. Won't say the, the company. Over the, the years from there, she worked with the company for several years, moved up into leadership, ultimately regional leadership. But she came home one day. She was upset. One of the reasons the reasons she was upset was because somebody had um, one of the workers was apparently stealing from the department store. She was the only black person on staff, and she was the one brought in first to be talked to. And she was watched by her bosses. And she said, "You think I'm doing this?" And this was right during that same time whenever the things happened with Eric Garner. And so our students were talking about things. Stuff was just everywhere. A lot of my friends were jumping online. All this argument is happening um, just everywhere about is the experience of a black person in America really any different today than the rest of us in a sense? And a lot of friends I grew up with in high school were saying so defiantly, "We have." gone through civil rights. We fought the Civil War. We are the only country that ever fought a war over slavery. You know, everything is great. Everything's being exaggerated. What is that? But then my race relations in my home um, showed a different experience from not just not just people out there, but but my friends. And then another example of that, Bishop, you know, my adopted daughter, she is biracial, complexion-wise and everything. For the most part, people would just think she had two black parents. We were financially poor missionaries, and so we went to low-income clinics to get our kids taken care of. Where we saw another difference in experience, the clinic was staffed by minorities, blacks and Hispanics. Whenever Crystal took in our biological son and daughter, so white woman with white kids, uh, she was looked down upon, she was talked rude to, and she was treated badly. Her appointment with Lizzie, our adopted daughter, whenever she took her in the next day, everybody was falling all over themselves to get a look at that baby. And then it, w- it was a totally different thing. So during this condensed period of time, 
we experienced race relations in a way that said, um, okay, there's still stuff going on. I don't care if we have all the answers or not, or who's to blame in every situation. And sometimes we get so hung up on that that we don't acknowledge there's still stuff going on. Yes. Well, but you know, the, the reason why I use the term race relations is because as an individual thing is I learned that I had to, first of all, look at a person from the standpoint, you know, people say, well, I don't see color. Well, you do. And I want you to. I want you, first of all, to see me as a, a person that's uh, a brother in Christ, but I also want want you to see what comes with me, how I'm packaged, what could have possibly been where I've come from and what I've experienced, because how we're packaged and where we come from also shapes our perspective and our personality. So when you say you don't see race, it's almost like saying, you know, that I got a big knot on my head and you say, I don't see that knot. And the knot is the really the only thing that you really see. Yeah. People sometimes don't know how to, what to say or how to respond. But when we have a race relationship, then that puts us in a place where, where we're comfortable enough with one another to ask questions that we may not would ask any time in our lives. Yes. You know, and so, so we have a race relationship. So relationship with me as a person, but it is is in relationship with me as a whole person, spirit, soul, and body. Yes. My, we talk about Christ, soulish, and we talk about Christianity and how we respond, but we also got to realize that we're housed uh, in these bodies that are black, brown, uh, and white. I jokingly, I say many times to churches, is that this race thing is nothing but us in piles of dirt that are just organized. We're organized mm-hmm. dirt. Some of us are white dirt. Some of us are brown dirt. Some of us are black dirt. Some of us are skinny dirt, and some of us are fat dirt. But yep. we're all <laughs> we're all dirt. Yeah. And when we die, we're going to go back to dirt. But being able to process dirt uh, in the sense of of the body, process that in the day's time and through the times that we've had through civil rights is important for the church. It's important for the church because, first of all, when God took Adam from the dirt and made him, he made Adam from the dirt in his image. So whatever color the dirt is and was and we are made up of, we're all in the image of God. There is no such thing as, biblically, as different races. Right. It's only one race. Right. Now, there are different nationalities and ethnicities, but only one race. So when we break through the barrier of skin and break through the barrier of our dirt color, then we can get to the principle that we're kinfolk. Mm -hmm. We all come from one man and one woman named Adam and Eve. So when we get back to the principle of that, then we can bring the race conversation that we're afraid to talk about to where we can have dinner together and talk honestly about it, and then even go to our pulpits and be able to articulate it from the standpoint of what does God's Word say about us as kinfolk. Yes. Okay, man, you said a lot of good stuff there. Whenever you mention having friends who you can talk to about anything, that is one of the greatest needs for a pastor to be able to address from the pulpit accurately, whether white, brown, or black, these sorts of issues. I wouldn't really want to talk about anything that I had never had the opportunity to study and discuss. And so why put the pressure on myself as a pastor to have all the answers up front of 100 or 
a thousand people at once whenever I have a friend who I could be talking to about these things. As you said earlier, you've been black for a long time. Yeah. You have perspective to to share. And so I just I just think that's a powerful thing that before we get to policy and big picture fixes, dinners and the things that you're talking about are so important. Well, the thing of it is when someone that I really want to get to know from a business perspective or just a, well, I'll give you an example. Scott Wilson and I are good friends. Uh, One day I was driving down 35 and God said, uh, turn off, go to that church on a Monday, go to that church and uh, meet the pastor. And I said, well, I don't know that church. He doesn't know me. I pulled off and I went, uh, got out and went to the to the office, and they saw me through the window coming. They were having a staff meeting, and they recognized me. Scott had recognized somebody had recognized me. So he sent someone out to bring me into their staff meeting, and I came in to staff meeting. I just I didn't know they had a staff meeting. I just wanted to see what God was up to and just stopped, and I came in the staff meeting. They greeted me. They loved on me. They, come on, have a seat. Sit here. We're having staff meeting. You're welcome to stay, and I stayed for the staff meeting, and for several Mondays, I started going to a staff meeting, having prayer, and and the Lord said, invite him and his wife to your home to have dinner. And so I did, and they, they consented. They came to our home. We had dinner together, had a great time together, and so our friendship even blossomed even more. Later, I told him, I said, because of who you are and because I want to be intentional about our relationship, I wanted to do something that Jesus did often. Jesus saw a guy that was in a tree by the name of Zacchaeus. He knew through God's knowledge of everything that Zacchaeus was struggling with finding out who he was, but he cared enough to climb up in the tree just to get a look at Jesus. And Jesus said, come down, Zacchaeus. I'm going to your house, and I'm going to have dinner with you because I want to understand you, and I want to understand the depths of you because Zacchaeus began to repent on the way down. But he went and had dinner with him. On another occasion, they were at dinner, and a Syphonician woman came up, and the story went on to, to say that she said, I know these this breadcrumbs is for the house of Israel, but uh, she said, and I know that I'm looked at as a dog, but even dogs deserve the crumbs that fall from the master's table. That was a table. What if we can begin to move away from all of these these polarizing positions and begin to say, why don't we just sit down at a table and have a brother to brother, I'm talking about Christians, conversation. You know, a whole lot of deals are made over, over lunch and over coffee and um, at the golf course. But we don't deal with this polarizing issue, the church I'm talking about, of race because we don't get in in proximity to have a relationship with race so we can have a relationship with the person. And Scott and I and, and his wife and Mary and my wife, we had supper that night. We got to know one another, got to know one another's kids and talk about some stuff that we wouldn't normally talk about in our casual just meeting like you and I have done. And we stopped in the hall and talked for an hour. But those moments breaking routine to talk about things that we think about, but we dare don't talk about. That's right. Well, Bishop, today, the way this conversation has developed, we've talked a lot about the um, 
the relationships that a pastor can form. Can can we do this? Can you and I get back together another time soon and do a part two uh, talking about these issues from the perspective of that position of a pastor, congregational dynamics, and we'll, we'll move beyond the interpersonal relationships more to as a corporate body of Christ in our communities. How can we bring healing and what can we do? So can we do that, Bishop? I'd love to do that. And, uh, and for the pastors that are listening, there are many probably will say, uh, Lennon, why didn't you do this before? And I, I'd love to do that because many pastors are sitting and having people sitting in the pew and wonder how we can break those barriers. Well, friends, if you're listening, just so you know, the questions that Bishop and I had, we actually thought we'd cover the whole gamut today. <laughs> but I think this this ended up being more important. So we're gonna make we're gonna make what would have been uh, one episode. We're gonna make it at least two, and so uh, we'll be back with you again very soon. In fact, we'll do this next week to come with part two of this episode. But Bishop, would you close us out with prayer today? Yeah, sure. Father, I just thank you right now, God, that you had this all figured out. Before the foundation of the world, you sent your son to reconcile us, to reconcile race, to reconcile all the issues that we have, to reconcile us back unto you. You made twin nations into one nation. You made multiple ethnic groups into one through your son. So, Father, I thank you right now. I pray for the pastors and churches that are listening to this podcast today, that they would um, understand that our, our sole purpose is to become one in you. And we thank you right now, Lord, that is done in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, have another good week serving Jesus and his bride, the local church. And um, if you have a friend who you can talk about these things with, ask them if they love you enough to let you ask some awkward, stupid questions. And if you don't have that type of friend, let's pray for the Lord to bring them into our lives. Let's start doing what it takes to meet and let this thing start with us.